In 31 A.D., there were multitudes of worshipers that came to Jerusalem. There are three pilgrimage feasts, and you read that in Exodus, the 23rd chapter. Turn to Exodus 23. We often read from Deuteronomy 16, but Exodus 23 also talks about the three pilgrimage feasts. Exodus 23 and verse 14. Uh, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abid. For in it you came out of Egypt. None of you shall appear before me empty or empty-handed. The same uh, wording that we give in Deuteronomy 16.16. And the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the Feast of Ungathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the, f- the fruit of your labors. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord Eternal. And so it's called here in verse 16, the Feast of Harvest, uh, the first fruits. So they were keeping the Feast of Harvest, or the first fruits, which, of course, became known as Pentecost. Uh, sometimes we wrongly say uh, Pentecost means count 50. Well, that's not correct. Uh, Pentecost means 50th. It means the 50th day. So it was the Feast of Harvest, and on Pentecost weekend, we're celebrating the beginning of the New Testament church. We're also observing the holy days of original Christianity. Mr. Weston gave a telecast called The Greatest Conspiracy of All, in which he offered the booklet uh, Restoring Original Christianity. Uh, We had some historian one time ask, I think, uh, Dr. Meredith or Dr. Hay, uh, what what is your church all about? And they said, he said, it's the first century Christianity. And that made sense to the historian. So if you have someone asking you, what does your church believe? You're saying, we are restoring first century Christianity or restoring original Christianity. I hope you uh, are, uh, have read that booklet. So the Feast of First Fruits teaches us some awesome lessons. We are training as kings and priests to teach and to rule under Christ in the millennium. And of course, even the weekly Sabbath is a foreshadowing of the millennial Sabbath under the reign of Jesus Christ. So Christ is the first of first fruits, and we are the first fruits of the kingdom. And that's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, that mentioned that Christ is the first of the first fruits. So one of these Pentecost lessons that we need to learn is the transformation from human nature to divine nature. We are now growing in godly character day by day. When we look at the world and all its violence and carnality, we realize, what were you like? What was I like before being converted? Some of you have grown up in the church, but some of us did not. And some of us grew up in a carnal world, and we were carnal. And we see one of the greatest transformations, one of the greatest miracles of all, is that the change from human nature to divine nature. That's one of the greatest lessons we want to learn today. And that's the title of the sermon today, The Miracle of Conversion. The Miracle of Conversion. Turn to Acts, the first chapter, Acts 1. With the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D. Acts, first chapter. We'll start reading in, in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and notice this, with his brothers. So here they had 120 disciples, as mentioned here in in verse 15. So notice the miracle, that here were the brothers of Jesus, who were actually brothers of unbelief, when you remember 
in John the seventh chapter where they chided him to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. They were brothers of unbelief, and now they are converted. They are there in the upper room. In Acts, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and the number of the names of them was about 120. So 120 were not up in the room. So where were they meeting on the Feast of Trumpets? I was just going into uh, the Internet and and uh, and did a Google search on the word centicle. The centicle is a Latin word for upper room. And it said this was the place where the 11 apostles received the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, the upper room was quite a distance from the Temple Mount. And so... When the day of Pentecost had come, let's see, Acts 2 and verse 1. Acts 2, verse 1. They were all in one accord in one place. So there are going to be a thousand, three thousand people baptized where three thousand people somewhere near the upper room. It was all called the centicle or the cenaculum. In fact, the same Greek word is translated, uh, temple. Notice the, the Acts 2, verse 1, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So is the word house, what was, what was, what was that meaning? The Greek word the translated house is oikos, and it's the same word, in Luke 11, verse 51, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. And there, the temple word is oikos. So oikos, uh, translated house, was also translated temple in Luke 11, verse 51. Uh, Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this uh, generation. So Jesus referred to God's house, that the temple, as God's house several times. I want to give you one example in John 2, verses 16 and 17. He said, take these things away. And he told the doves, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then the disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's John 2, uh, verses 16 and 17. So where did they meet on the day of Pentecost? The disciples had been up in the upper room, but where did they meet on the day of Pentecost? It was not in the upper room. Um, turn to Acts 5 and uh, verse 12. Acts 5 and verse 12. And, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord, where? In Solomon's porch, which was a covered walking area with many different columns. And you will find how far was that from the upper room. It's interesting, you go to Google Maps and you put in Centicle, and then from Centicle to the Temple Mount. Centicle was, again, the upper room, the traditional place, and it is how far? Actually, Google Maps will tell you the walking distance from the upper room, the Centicle, to the Temple Mount is 1.1 miles, or, uh, I'm sorry, 1.1 kilometers, or .684 minutes, and it says it takes 17 or 16 minutes to walk from the Centicle to the Temple Mount. So if there was this mighty rushing room, how did thousands of people from the Temple Mount come up to the upper room? That was impossible. Where were they meeting? They were meeting in Solomon's porch. And that's uh, various groups or synagogues actually met within the colonnade. There are different, different areas within the colonnade or Solomon's porch. The Greek synagogue uh uh, forgive the translation, synagogue, can be translated gathering or gathering places. So these groups or synagogues frequently met in Solomon's porch. The Anchor Bible Dictionary explains the term synagogue. 
the meeting place and prayer hall of the Jewish people since antiquity. During Second Temple, uh, Temple times, the term synagogue referred to both to a group of people and or a building or institution. Although these notions were not uh, mutually exclusive, it is quite probable that in the inception, the synagogue did not refer to an actual building, but to a group or community of individuals who met together for worship for religious purposes. That's uh, the article synagogue from the Anchor Bible Dictionary. So in other words, a synagogue was not a building necessarily in the first century. It was a group of people. And so you had these various groups of people meeting in Solomon's porch on Pentecost because they were various language groups that had come from from all over. And of course, uh, you might I won't turn there, but just to mention that jo- that Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. That's John 10 verse 23. And Jesus walked in the temple where in Solomon's porch. Acts 3:11. Uh, practicing in Solomon's porch. Now, as the lame man was healed, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran to, to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So shortly after Pentecost, Acts 3, verse uh, 11, where was the lame man healed? In Solomon's porch. So the first New Testament uh, Pentecost was there as all the uh, holy days were kept with the pilgrimage feast, when you come to the temple, uh, they would various meet in Solomon's porch. I'll refer you to the May-June 2015 Living Church News, the first New Testament Pentecost article. So one of the Pentecost miracles were the apostles uh, speaking in various languages. So Acts 2, and we'll mention in... Uh, verse, uh, verse five, verse, yeah, Acts two and verse five. We'll start there. We'll probably hear some more of that tomorrow in the Pentecost sermon. But I just want to bring out one point here in, uh, Acts two and starting with verse five. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because every man heard them speak in his own language. <clears throat> then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are that these who speak Galileans? And how is it they all here in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Now notice that they were from Asia as well. So... They went back from that Pentecost to various different areas, starting Christian communities in many different areas, from Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of the Libya uh, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretes, Arabs, we hear them speaking their own language, the wonderful works of God. So there was not gibberish, as uh, Mr. Weston uh, mentioned in a couple of the, the Pentecost sermons that's been circulated now. It's just very inspiring that they understood in their own language. So those who are, are sacred names people deny, of course, the inspiration of the, the Greek text. The Greek text is not uh, sacred names in, in Hebrew. It's in, in Greek. And so they even deny the inspiration of the New Testament, if you will. Uh, we do have actually um, um, in the current tomorrow's uh, Living Church News. I hope you've all read the uh, current Living Church News May June issue, uh, Mr. Weston's dear brethren. Keep your lamp filled with oil, and then a lot of at Pentecost uh, messages in here, and uh, one by uh, uh, Phil Senna, the purpose of speaking in tongues. So I hope you've read that, and if you have not, hope you can read that article. Uh, Stir up the Holy Spirit, uh, the chief propagandist, uh, the tale of two uh, Pentecosts, some very inspiring articles uh, on Pentecost in the current LCN. I hope you've uh, read uh, most of them, or you will sometime soon. In Acts, the second chapter, 
with their verse 17. <clears throat> they, they're one of, they're telling, they're asking Peter, what is this all about? Acts 2 and uh, verse 17. And he tells them that's what is spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass, verse 17, the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And I've observed my, my wife talking to others and on the telephone, and I realize God is inspiring her. A prophesy means inspired speaking. And so both our children, men and women, can prophesy, that is, they're inspired speaking that God guides them. Your young men shall see visions, old men shall dream dreams, my men servants and my maid servants. And I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in heaven above and the signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. Verse 20, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be passed. Well, whoever calls on the name of the Lord who has repented, of course. Well, Peter was talking about actually astronomical signs that took place. It was called a day of darkness. This is what fulfilled the prophecy of Joel. And I'll refer you to Joel 2 in verse 31 that talks about the darkness and the blood-red moon. And we did have, of course, over 2014, 2015, we had the tetrads. We had some um, solar, had uh, the solar eclipses and lunar eclipses, uh, the red, red blood moon. Uh, they call it a tetrad because there were four of those lunar eclipses that showed a red blood moon. And, uh, of course, it was not a, a astronomical, it was not a solar eclipse when Jesus was on the cross for, for those three hours. It was a supernatural darkness. And it was mentioning, of course, in Matthew 27, verse 45. Remember that during the crucifixion, Jerusalem had experienced an often astronomical sign of darkness for three hours. That was not a solar eclipse. That was supernatural darkness. So those in the audience that had been Jerusalem had seen what Peter was talking about, that they had seen a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of those three hours of supernatural darkness. Three weeks ago, uh, I, uh, my wife and I were, we were getting ready for bed, and we were reading the Bible, and I got a phone call that said, Oh, uh, did you see the uh, red blood moon eclipse outside, the lunar eclipse? So my wife and I, instead of going to bed, went outside, and the eclipse came to fulfillment at 11.30. That was Sunday uh, May 15th. I, how many of you saw that eclipse? Any of you see the uh, lunar eclipse that night? I see only only a few hands. But uh, it did turn red blood moon. And it was actually is, uh, called uh, one of the called a super flower blood moon. The May 15th lunar eclipse was called a super flower blood moon. So anyway, um, when Jesus was put in the tomb, that was the night to be much observed. That was the 15th of the first month. And uh, the astronomers have shown that there was a partial eclipse, apparently historically, that night that would have been partially a red blood moon that they would have seen, that Peter's audience would have seen. But the main thing was the, the miracle of conversion that had happened on that day. You turn to Acts, the second chapter, and again you know... Uh, Peter's inspiring sermon that he gave. And the main thing was in Acts 2, is start reading in verse 36. Acts 2 and verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We have a... Um, a Protestant uh, uh, news uh, called the News from Israel, and we're talking about 
the, a Jewish writer was saying that Jews did not crucify Christ. Well, when you read here several times, and we'll see it more than once, uh, Peter said, you crucified Lord and the Christ. Uh, the Jewish community would say the Romans crucified Christ. Well, they put the nails on the hand, but the Jews were responsible for that. You have crucified both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Uh, they were convicted of their sins and said to the men and the rest of the men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the beginning of a transformation. One of the greatest Lessons and one of the greatest experiences of Pentecost was the change from human nature to divine nature when God poured out his spirit. As Peter said in quoting Joel, that Joel said, I will pour out my spirit upon you. So this is a wonderful time whether we have the gift of transformation, the gift of conversion. 3,000 were baptized on that day. And so where, where could 3,000 meet? 3,000 meet met at, uh, around uh, Solomon's porch. Obviously, there were more than 3,000, but 3,000 uh, were baptized on that day. But one of the greatest Pentecost events was a conversion of thousands of people. So what is the significant meaning of Pentecost? We'll hear more about that tomorrow, the meanings of Pentecost. But Pentecost was the beginning of the New Testament Church of God. Pentecost was the calling of the first fruits of God's master plan. And Pentecost demonstrated the miraculous transformation from human nature to divine nature. Turn to Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans 12. We find then the transformation that we must make in our lives today. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 1, Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So we have a conversion. We have a transformation in our lives from carnality to divine nature. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt with each one a measure of faith. So we are called to be transformed. And what? how does that happen? By the begettal of God's Holy Spirit. So turn to James 1 and verse 16. James 1 verse 16. We're discussing the process of conversion here. And James gives us the beginning of that. James 1 and verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow or turning. Verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the King James has it more accurately. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. So we are begotten by God, and we are that makes us firstfruits of God's creation. Turn to Second Peter 1. Second Peter. Well, of course, one of my uh, favorite uh, promises that God gives us. Second Peter 1, and starting with verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine nature has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, 
by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You realize when you look at the world and see the evil from all around the globe, from South America to Europe to Asia, all over the world, it's a world of human nature. It's a world that Mr. Weston has talked about. We'll be seeing disaster upon disaster because of human nature. And yet God has promised this in his plan, master plan of salvation, some people to be converted and to have, as he says here, partakers of the divine nature, divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. How There are not enough words to give God the thanks and the abundance of blessings and grace that he's given us to think that we have been changed from carnality to divine nature. And that divine nature, of course, is exemplified by the fruits of the Spirit. So we have seen Pentecost, a transformation from human nature to divine nature. We talk about some of these scriptures regarding the transformation and conversion. Turn to Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans 8 and verse 28. Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Verse 29. For whom we foreknew, he also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. So we are to be conformed to the image that is the character, the mind, the nature, and the spirit of Christ. And that's what we are all here for. And we thank God for, for that. But that's just the process, and the process we know is Second Peter 3.18, but grow but grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. To him be the glory and both now and forever. So we've discussed briefly the process of conversion. God begets us of his spirit. We need to be conformed to the image of Christ. We need to be transformed, not conformed to the world, but renewing our minds with the spirit of God. Next, I want to give you a few examples of dramatic conversions. Let's turn to Acts, the seventh chapter. Four examples of individuals who are converted from human nature to divine nature and how that nature was exemplified in their lives. Acts, the seventh chapter. Acts, the seventh chapter. Here we find the story of Stephen, one of the first deacons. And he was refuting all of those that around the Temple Mount they couldn't they couldn't uh, confute they couldn't uh, argue uh, accurately against Stephen. He convicted them by his answers and logic and uh, biblical examples, but they accused him of blasphemy against Moses and God, and so his report before the Sanhedrin. And he, he talks for 49 verses, giving the history of Israel all the way from Abraham and Moses, showing that he was not against God, not against Moses. And then all of a sudden, something happens. We don't know what happened at that point in time, but he, he's going on with this whole history. And someone must have sparked a change in his approach, because then... You read Acts 7 and verse 51. God gave him great boldness uh, to speak and uh, tell the Sanhedrin, You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. We talk about the boldness of Peter on Pentecost. And yet Stephen was also bold. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father said, so do you. Which of the prophets did you, your fathers not? persecute and they kill those who forehold the summing of the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers <laughs> there's no question that the Jewish people 
the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. No question about it. For you have become the betrayers and murderers. You have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So Stephen the martyr, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him and with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here is another, we'll talk about another example of conversion from Saul to Paul. But they stoned Stephen and he was calling on God and saying, I, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, what are the characteristics of conversion is brought out here in the last statement by, by Stephen. What would you or I do if we were being stoned to death? We have stones crushing against our, our chest and our head and, and our body. And what did Stephen say? What did he pray? He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said that, he fell asleep. You talk about conversion. Here was an example of a person who was deeply converted and would even say that, ask God to not charge the sin against his executioners and all those who stoned them. And here was Saul, of course, giving uh, his approval to the execution. So we took a look at a dramatic transformation or dra- dramatic conversion of Stephen and the characteristics of conversion. Let's take a look at another example. That's the Apostle James. Now we already read in Acts the first chapter in verse 14 that they were up in the upper room with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus' brothers, that is James and Jude were there and they wrote the epistle of James wrote the epistle of Jude, but they were ones that criticized him there, as we already saw in, in John, the seventh chapter. And here they are converted. What a miracle was taking place. And James was martyred. There is a history by Hegesippus, uh, quoted by Eusebius, the church history. And this is the history about James. He was a very prominent in the Jewish community, so so prominent that he could write to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, as it does in, in his epistle. He writes to the twelve tribes. He had the prominence in Jerusalem. And the scribes and Pharisees wanted James to deny Jesus Christ. So they put him on the temple parapet. And they said, you deny uh, Jesus Christ. And he replied, with a wide, a, a loud voice. This is history. You can say, well, it's tradition, but, uh, this is what is recorded in history. James apparently said, quote, why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will come on, on the clouds of heaven. So many were convinced and rejoiced at James' test, uh, testimony of the crowds of people saying, Hosanna, the son of David. But the Pharisees went up and they threw him down from the parapet. And they said to each other, let us stone James the just. They began to stone him since the fall had not killed him. But he turned and knelt down and said, saying, quote, I implore you, O Lord God and Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is a Hegesippus history. Quoting James is, quote, saying the same thing 
as Jesus did, will forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Hegesippus continues the history. While they were pelting him with stones, one of the priests among the sons of the Rechabites, to whom the prophet Jeremiah bore witness, cried out, Stop! What are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you. Then one of them, a laundry man, took a club that he used to beat out clothes and hit the just on the head. Such was his martyrdom. They buried him in the spot by the temple, and his graveside is still there by the temple. He became a true witness to both Jews and Gentiles that Jesus is the Christ. That's from Eusebius of Church History, uh, chapter 2, section 23. William Barclay makes this comment. Much of the story of Hegesippus may be legendary, but from it two things emerge. First, it again... It is again evidence that James died a martyr's death. Second, it is evidence that even after James became a Christian, he remained in complete loyalty to the Orthodox Jewish law, so loyal that the Jews considered him one of themselves. And that's why he was right, able to write to the twelve tribes of Israel. So we've seen two examples of tremendous conversion. Stephen and James, who was converted. Let's take another one. Took a look at, at Saul, who was changed to Paul. Turn to Galatians, the first chapter. Galatians, the first chapter. Galatians 1. You find here was the one Saul who was approving of the death of Stephen. Galatians 1 and verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Here is, you talk about the extreme and carnality. Here was a man who was trying to destroy the very church of God. Turn to 1 Timothy 1 and verse 14. We'll find a more, another confession. Uh, by him. First Timothy 1 and verse 14. First Timothy 1 verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was extraordinary abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came to into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I observe mercy that in me the first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. And so he says he is the chief of sinners. And yet he became converted. And as we know with all of his writings, and he mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11th chapter, all the sufferings he went through, beaten with rods, uh, left for dead, a day and night in a deep, stoned several times. He went through great sufferings, and yet he was. Uh, he said he labored more than they abundantly they own. First Corinthians 15, verse 10. He said, "But by the grace of God, I am who I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me." He labored more abundantly than all. So here was a person who was persecuting the church of God and yet became deeply converted. And God used him to serve the, the Gentile community. So we talked briefly about Stephen, James, and, and Saul who became Paul. And there were others. It was King David, of course, who committed great sins, adultery, and causing the death of Uriah. And so in Psalm 51, we have the, the deep conversion prayer of King David. He said, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. I have sinned against you and, and sinned against you only and done this evil in your sight. So there was a great conversion of King David. And God blessed him and, 
and uh, he, he called him a man after God's own heart who will do all my will. That's Acts uh, 13, verse 22. Just turn to 1 Peter 1 again, just uh, 1 Peter 1, just to bring out, uh, well, did God convert people in the Old Testament? Well, there are very few, of course, in the Old Testament that were converted. But yet, 1 Peter 1 and uh, verse 10, 1 Peter 1 and verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, was indicating when they testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Spirit of Christ was with them, even some of the prophets of old, and some of those, of course, who were the Old Testament saints and who will be in the first resurrection, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, of course, all of the men and women of, of faith mentioned in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. So we have the conversion of King David. You have the conversion of the Apostle Peter. You know, I won't turn there, but in Acts the fifth chapter, it says that, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. No, the Apostle Peter changed from denying Christ three times to being the outstanding apostle of this time. So we've seen examples of dramatic transformation from human nature to divine nature. And some of you could tell stories of perhaps some of your friends and perhaps of your own life. If you did not grow up in the church and you knew how carnal you were in the past and I've read letters to you before from a prisoner who was put in prison and said, this put me in prison saved my life. He had done so many wrong things, and yet when he was put in prison, God called him, and he began to see and read the literature of Tomorrow's World magazine and the Bible study course and became converted. So the next I want to talk about briefly the power of the Holy Spirit. What makes you converted? And, of course, our children, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7, you children have God's Holy Spirit with you. Once you're baptized, God's Spirit will be in you. But you children have God's Spirit with you. And you can be thanking God for that when you pray. But what is the power of the Holy Spirit? Genesis 1 and verse 2. The earth was with form and and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So Genesis 1 and verse 2 talks about the Spirit of God, and we call that the recreation. Genesis 1-1 was the original creation, but Genesis 1 verse 2 is the recreation, as it tells us in uh, Psalm 104 and verse 30. Mr. Armstrong would uh, repeat that particular reference, Psalm 103 and verse uh, 40. As uh, Psalm 104 and verse 30, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. So Genesis 1-2 was the renewal, it was a creation, but it was with the power of God that created all of the animals and the fish and and all of the environmental actions in this earth and the sea and all the creatures in the earth and in the sea. And every Sabbath we should remind ourselves that God is the creator of heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is. And I've I've mentioned that before. Of course, it's Psalm 8 and uh, verse 3. David said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? But you've made him, you've put him control over all the fish of the sea. Uh, my wife and I attended the uh, 
uh, guess it was the the, the fish uh, example. I forget the name of the the company where they had the big great whales, and here was this woman, 120 pounds, I would say, giving orders to this four-ton killer whale. Now, that's in Orlando at the, uh, at the uh, uh, I forget the name of the, the place, but here was, the, here was this big whale, and she has the whale doing certain things coming up out of the water. And she gave in Psalm 80 said, "You give it control over all things, even the fish of the sea." And it's such an amazing thing that God has given us the the the, the power of creation, so the power with which Christ upholds the universe. Hebrews one, turn to Hebrews one and verse one. Remember the power of the Holy Spirit, which have you have in you. It's the power of creation. Hebrews, first chapter, Hebrews one verse one. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things through whom also he has made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged his sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Did you notice? Upholding all things by the word of his power. When I think of the two trillion galaxies that are out there that are going out into space at a hundred million miles an hour, who's controlling them? No, Jesus Christ is the one who has all power that upholding all things, that's the upholding the universe by the word of his power. That's the savior you have. That's the power that he has. Through the Holy Spirit, the power of creation. And God has given you the Holy Spirit, which also is a power of creation. Secondly, the power of God's Spirit is the power of begettal. I already read to you uh, James 1, verse 17. Of his own will begat he us the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. So we are begotten by God's Holy Spirit. First, uh, turn to First Peter one, uh, the second twenty-second uh, chapter. I mean, First Peter one, verse twenty-two. First Peter one, and verse twenty-two. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been be born again, actually it should be begotten again, having been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So God has begotten us as his children. And as it tells us in Second Corinthians uh, verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is the master plan of God's salvation that the world doesn't understand. God's purpose is that he is reproducing himself, and he's calling members into his family. And we are begotten children of God, and we will be born again at the resurrection, at the seventh trumpet. So, God has begotten us by his Holy Spirit. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God is the father of a spiritual family. Uh, turn to Ephesians, the third chapter, Ephesians 3. Again, it's such an inspiring section. For this reason, 
I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, verse 14. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we or won't be filled with all the fullness of God until we are, are, are born into the kingdom of God and become his born-again glorified spirit children. But he's given us that blessing that he is a father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So that's the wonderful master plan that God is creating, converting human beings from human nature to divine nature, begetting them as his children, helping us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, being transformed, conformed to the very image, character, mind of Christ. So it's the spirit of creation, the spirit of begettal. It's also the spirit of the resurrection. Turn to Romans, the eighth chapter. God's Holy Spirit works in many different ways with many different characteristics. Romans 8 and verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who or which dwells in you. So it's the spirit of the resurrection that God is going to give you life through his Holy Spirit. And that's a wonderful, wonderful characteristic of God's Holy Spirit. The fourth characteristic of the power of God's Spirit is truth. Turn to John, the 16th chapter, and verse 13. We talked about creation and the record and the power of God's Spirit, of the power of creation, the power of the resurrection, the power of begettal, but also the power of truth. John, the 16th chapter, we of course read this in the Passover service. John 16, verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. That's, of course, a personification and not not a real person. So he tells us, of course, in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So God's spirit of truth guides us into all truth. And, of course, he tells us in John 8:32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There are so many people that are slaves to sin, and God has given us, as we saw during the days of eleven bread and Passover, given us freedom from sin to become the slaves and servants of God and the servants of Christ. So, brethren, how much of that power are you using in your life? I want to give you some action steps that you should take. We talked about the power of God's Spirit. We've talked about examples of dramatic conversion from human nature to divine nature. Turn to 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4 and verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We have a sermon called the Daily Renewal. You can go on our website, members, um, lcg.org, and uh, do the, the search bar, Daily Renewal, and you'll get that sermon on daily renewal. And then you have 1 Corinthians, um, the 12th chapter. You have Ephesians, the 4th chapter. Return to Ephesians 4. 
So the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. Turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. You know, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 talk about the old man and the new man. Ephesians 4 talks about the putting on the new man. Ephesians 4 and verse 20. Let no corrupt communication of the word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by God, but be your sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another, as Christ has forgiven you. And so we remember in verse 23, verse 22, it says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness. So you put off the old man, verse 22 of Ephesians 4. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23. So we need to be renewing our God's spirit day by day, by day. And he's given us not the spirit of fear, but the spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. And we have to stir up that gift, as he tells us in first, uh, Second Timothy 1 and verse 6. And, uh, or as the, and NIV says, fan into flame the gift of God. Uh, the NIT says, because of this I remind you to rekindle God's gift that you may possess through the laying on of my hands. And in the Living Church News we have the article by John Meekin, Stir Up the Holy Spirit. That's in the current uh, Living Church News. I hope you've read that article on Stir Up the Holy Spirit. So we have need to be bearing the fruits of God's Spirit. We live in the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit and bear the fruits of God's Holy Spirit. We know that Christ is a vine and we are the branches. And he said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. That's John 15 and verse 8. And so I hope... You pray every day, brethren, that God will bear fruit in you, that you will radiate the fruits of God's Holy Spirit. And that he said in John seven thirty seven and 38, that you pray that God's Spirit will flow out from you in rivers of living water. And that is through the fruits of the Holy Spirit and radiating the light of God's truth. We need to fulfill God's work by His Spirit and how the Zechariah 4 in verse 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. So we realize that we have a mission. We turn to Acts, the first chapter again. Acts, the first chapter in closing, we realize we have a great mission to perform. Acts 1. And Acts 1 and verse 7. And they said in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power where the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 1 and verse 8. God tells us to be filled with the Spirit. So today we've discussed one of the miracles of Pentecost, the change from human nature to divine nature. We must be transformed. We must be converted. The day of Pentecost and first fruits, we can rejoice in our calling. Pray that we'll always be filled with the Spirit. Thank God for the miracle conversion. Let's rejoice 
in the day of Pentecost. We'll hear more about that tomorrow. And, of course, we have the opportunity for a Holy Day offering as well as tomorrow morning. So you'll want to pray about it. But we've seen the miracle of conversion, dramatic changes from human nature to divine nature. So pray that you can be deeply converted. Pray that you can be the light of the world. And with the very power of God, may we preach the gospel of the kingdom and the truth of God to the end of the earth.